You may be seated. We are going to study God's Word. We're going to go to the Gospel, the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to read Mark chapter 14, verses 50 to 72. That's Mark 14, verses 50 to 72. And if you can, can you please stand for the reading of God's word? I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. This is God's word. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another one not made with hands. Yet even about their testimony did they not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst of Jesus and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them. You are a Galilean. 
But he began to evoke a curse on himself to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Gracious Father, we pray that you give us understanding and clarity of speech that we may grow and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Those of you who think I've been struck by some amnesia, I know that we have to complete chapter four of Jonah, but we just wanna take a little pause and we'll look at Jonah four, complete the book next week. A worker for the Southern Railroad Company once took the stand in a criminal case to determine if the train company was at fault in the death of several passengers. He swore to tell the truth and sat on the witness seat. He was asked, Mr. Taylor, were you working during the night in question? Yes, I was. Were you on duty at the time of the incident? Yes, sir, was on duty at that time. Did you wave your lantern from side to side and back and forth? Yes, I did. How many times did you do that, Mr. Taylor? Four times, like I always do. Thank you, Mr. Taylor. I have no more questions. You may return to your seat. When Mr. Taylor returned to his seat, he told his co-worker that sat next to him, they asked me about the lantern but they never asked me anything about the light in the lantern. There was nothing wrong with that lantern, but the problem was the darkness or the lack of light in the lantern. Mr. Taylor took pride in his ability to deceive the court by leaving out pertinent information. But it wasn't the fact that he lied, it was his depravity that caused him to not tell the truth. His depravity led him to have a high view of himself. But Mr. Taylor is not alone. Our depravity leads us to have a high estimation of ourselves and blinds us from our need for Christ. But why do we need Christ anyway? We will look at, the three, these, at three bold claims Jesus makes in this narrative to find the answer to that question. His first bold claim was, you will fall away. Number two, you will deny me three times. And number three, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Let's look at the background of Mark. Mark was the son of a well-to-do lady in Jerusalem named Mary. His house was the rallying point and the meeting place of the early church. We find that in Acts 12, 12. Mark was also the nephew of Barnabas. We learn from the New Testament that Mark was on a missionary expedition and left. He went home. He deserted the, the mission. It's not clear why, though. He could have been fearful of the dangerous roads during that time. 
or he didn't like that his uncle was taking a back seat to Paul, or he was just a mama's boy, and he went back home to mama. Whatever the reason, he failed miserably. Most of his life, Mark was, Mark was marked by undependability. He could not be counted on. By the end of the apostle's life, the apostle Paul's life, he asked Timothy to bring Mark. How did Mark change from a person who could not be depended on to a person of dependability? Something happened to Mark. He matured, yet it was not something that changed him, but someone. God did a work in Mark. Not immediately after his conversion, but over a period of time. This is good news for us. Maybe you are here as a believer and your life has been marked by anger. Or lust. Or greed. Or the safe sin, gossip. Whatever vice, God can deliver and mature you. Mark's life stands as a testimony that God is able and he won't fail. Go to him and ask him to change you. Though there are three gospels that are similar, we call those the synoptic gospels because they kind of see things in a similar way and they have similar events as opposed to John, which is a little different. But with the three synoptic gospels, it still has marks. They still have marks that are different from each other. Each one focuses on a particular trait of Jesus. Mark opens his book with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He points back to the beginning, which makes us think of Genesis never letting us lose sight of Jesus. Not simply a great man among men, but God among men. As the commentator Barclay says, every moving, ever moving them to a wondering amazement with his words and deeds. Have you ever noticed you're reading the book of Mark? The disciples are never getting it. They're always amazed. They're always perplexed. They're always, they always get the wrong answer. Right? This is Mark's purpose. In the section of scripture that we are studying this morning, Mark highlights that amazement by using a split screen. Now, it's important to know that mm, theater, if you've ever gone to a show, Broadway show or any kind of show, sometimes they will have a front view. I'm not using the, the right terminology, but I think you understand. They have a front view and the spotlight is on that, but they don't close the curtain. You see in the background things are happening, right? Or if you have never been to a show and you, you watch TV, sometimes they have a split screen in the TV. Sometimes one is at the bottom, one is at the top, or right down the middle, split screen. You're seeing two things happen simultaneously. Well, this is what Mark is doing. 
we will easily see Jesus' uniqueness when he's presented alongside our humanity. Jesus' first bold claim was, you will fall away. This is part of an Old Testament text in Zechariah 13.7, and it is focused on what will happen in the future when the Messiah will destroy the wicked and their leaders. But Jesus focuses on the scattering of the disciples. Earlier in this gospel, according to Beale and Carson, we see all their self-confident grasping for greatness. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? You're not the greatest, I'm the greatest. And their desire to shepherd one another. Who's going to be at the top? Who's going to be next to Jesus? Who's going to be the, the leader? And that self-confidence that the disciples displayed is what Mark wants to highlight in this narrative. In verse 50, Mark makes a point to say that they all, all his disciples, left and fled. Jesus spoke truth in his claim that they would leave him, and now he will suffer and die alone. Verses 51 to 52. Now, I'm talking and you're listening, but I want your eyes to kind of glaze over or pivot to 51 to 52. This is one of the strangest verses in all of Mark's gospel. If you didn't hear it when I read it the first time, and a young man followed him, and nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. What makes this so strange? Well, Matthew records this same thing, and Luke has this same account, but they leave out 51 and 52. It's not there. Why? This appeared important to Mark. Why? One of the great things about understanding Scripture or reading Scripture or studying Scripture on your own is to question the text. Why? Why would Mark put that in there? Like it doesn't say Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't say Jesus healed. It's like a, man, a naked man just ran away. Like what, what? That doesn't make any sense, really. Well, to my mind, it doesn't. But we might gather clues from the text. This young man was obviously not one of the 12. He was, coming, he was kind of young. Yep, and lived near Jerusalem. He was a man of means because only the wealthy wore linen coverings under their tunics. The fact that he had only one linen cloth without the undergarments indicated that he had dressed in haste to come and follow the situation. So he lived, he lived close. He didn't come very far. He didn't run 50 miles with just a cloak. He was close. He wanted to see the action. There's evidence enough that this may be Mark himself. We find in the book of John that John talks about himself but never mentions his own name. He says, the disciple that Jesus loved. That's you, isn't it? The one that outran him. That's you. This may be Mark. Mark, or the young man in question, ran away naked. Hopefully, the motif of nakedness brings your thought 
back to Genesis. Adam and Eve was created and placed in the garden without clothing. They were naked. They were not ashamed of their nakedness until they sinned before God. Ever since that time, we cover our nakedness, but the shame remains. What do you do with your shame? Your shame that cover comes from sin and guilt. It's a question we all must answer. But before Mark goes on to describe the religious leaders and the apostle Peter, he included himself in that company of people who scattered when Jesus was struck. Now comes the split screen that I talked to you about earlier. It says, Jesus is led to the high priest, and the chief priest and the elders and the scribe came together. Boy, these religious rulers are flaming. They are angry. They've been angry for a very long time. They've been trying to get Jesus somewhere, squeezing him with questions. And, and they've been trying to get Jesus to make a slip so they can destroy him. And they're really, really angry now. They sent out people in the dark, brought them in, and here they are. They're ready. This has been building and it has now come to a climax. This is the climax of the story. But Mark doesn't just focus on Jesus before the council, but the other screen has Peter in the courtyard. Now, wouldn't it have made sense, if you were writing, to just write about Jesus so we can focus on Jesus, because he's the main character in the story, and leave Peter's stuff to the end? You know, this is what happened, and then Jesus says, you shall see the Son of Man. And then you talk about Peter in the courtyard. But that's not how it goes. It's going this back and forth and back and forth. Why? Some of you may say, I thought the focus is on Jesus before the council. It is. And others of you may say, I thought the focus is on Peter in the courtyard. It is. Mark could have separated them, but he put them together. You know what question I'm going to ask you. Why? It is a contrast, and we will see Peter in light of Jesus and Jesus in light of Peter and the religious rulers and the false witnesses. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of the Jewish nation. Sometimes we're reading and we think, hmm, 12 men. Hmm, seven judges. You know, like America. We bring America to this text, right? But no, Sanhedrin is 71 members led by the high priest. Okay, now you're getting the scene. Hopefully you're getting this scene now. Jesus is before 71 men. Not four, not seven, not 12, 71. Can 71 fit? Yeah, 71 people can fit in here. But all of your faces, most of you who are awake, all of your faces are smiling. You're smiling at me. I don't know if that's a front for you trying to sleep and you're smiling, but nevertheless, you look nice and happy. 71 men, did they look happy? Do you think they were happy? No, they were angry. They were fighting mad. And this is where Jesus is.
this was an illegal trial. And there can be 17 reasons, but I'm going to only use two. One, Jesus was not taken to the chamber of hewn stone, which was the normal meeting place of the Sanhedrin. This was the only recorded instance of a Jewish trial being conducted at night. The second reason is the same law that they're supposed to be lawyers of, Deuteronomy 17, 6 states, at the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he who is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness, he shall not be put to death. They couldn't get any of the witnesses to agree, but it didn't matter. We see these religious rulers gathering witnesses, seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Many bore false witness against him. This is a tremendous pressure. Not only the 71 men, but people coming in and out. Yeah, yeah, he said he was going to do this. Yeah, yeah, he said he was going to do that. Yeah, yeah, he said he was going to do this. This is intimidating. All of the rulers and the community was there. But what do we see from Jesus? We see a majestic constraint. We see an unshakable confidence in the one who was in control. He prayed to the Father in the garden and rested in the fact that he was doing the will of his Father. Imagine if you were in the room with all the governing authorities that represented America. All of the senators, all of the House of Representatives, all of the Supreme Court judges. And all you had to do was say, I didn't do anything. This is illegal. You shouldn't be doing this to me. Jesus didn't open his mouth. He didn't say a word. Up to this time, Jesus has not said a word. In the face of these religious rulers who are flaming and these unfaithful lying witnesses, Jesus would have been justified in trying to plead his innocence. But he said nothing. These are the kings of the earth, and the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. Why this response or lack of response from Jesus? All of this is happening as scripture predicted. Isaiah 53, 7, the Messiah would be oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. Can you see the innocence of Jesus? Have you ever noticed how innocent Jesus was? Like if you thought maybe he was innocent, this has to convince you that he's innocent. Why did Jesus have to be innocent? Jesus didn't come to suffer under the hand. He didn't just come to suffer under the hand of unjust rulers, but he came to serve and give his life for a ransom. In order for Jesus Christ to satisfy the wrath of God, he had to offer a perfect sacrifice. He offered his soul to the Father as an offering for guilt. That perfect offering was accepted by the Father, and the proof of that acceptance was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
He took on flesh to ransom us. Never trace nor stain of sin, but no grave could ever restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering is our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Would you like to have that unwavering hope? It's a joy to behold. J.R. Packard said, There's no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God and God has known them and that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life, through death, and on forever. How about you? Are you experiencing that peace? Would you like to have that peace? Then maybe, just maybe, the Holy Spirit is working right now in your heart to stir that conviction. You can turn to Christ and receive that peace. You could have that assurance. Then repent and receive Christ. But we have all bore false witness against Jesus, refusing to acknowledge that he was innocent, claiming that he said something he never said. How many of us said, Jesus, yes, before we came to know him, said, yeah, okay, okay, Jesus is a prophet. Jesus never said that of himself. He said he's the Christ, the son of the living God. Yeah, Jesus said he came for the lost sheep of Israel, the Americans. Jesus never said that. He said, go into all the world and make the disciples of all nations. Well, Jesus is love and he's going to save everybody. Jesus never said that. He said, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. If you are here today and you are now under heavy conviction, then repent, come to Christ and be made new so you can become a true witness of that Jesus is more than a prophet. These religious leaders, these religious rulers has condemned Jesus to death. Why? Well, because they wanted to continue to preach and teach an impossible doctrine. They wanted to put milestones around everyone else's neck, but never lift a finger to help in that process. They wanted to come to the synagogue and wear their religious clothing yet not allow any of that teaching to affect their beliefs and actions. They were angry and wanted to silence Jesus. Isn't that a temptation for us as well? Our depravity wants to embrace the benefits that come from fellowship with the saints, but reject all the demands of faithful living. And when God, through his words spoken by his prophet, confronts our sin, we say, like the chief rulers, ah, what further witnesses do we need? We need to put to death every remnant of Jesus. Don't we see that? Don't we see that now? That is you and that is me. We are angry and continue to bear false witness against God and our neighbor. But Jesus remains faithful, although we are faithless. Let God be true and every man a liar. Now we, look at the, we looked at the religious rulers who are flaming but the split-screen contrast shows us the daunted disciple who is flickering 
His light is barely there. Peter is following Jesus from a distance. He comes into the courtyard and he's sitting with the guards. Let's pause. We've heard this too many times. We are familiar with it, and you know familiarity sometimes breeds contempt. Where are the other disciples? Do you remember Peter kept saying, Lord, I'm going to go with you. We only focus on the denial. Peter was in the courtyard with the guards. One of them, he cuts off the ear. Well, that's as brave as you're going to get. You say, oh, no, I never heard that preach that Peter was brave. Where, where is he? He's downstairs. Jesus is upstairs. He's there. He's trying his best. He's working his works of righteousness. He's trying. He said he was going to do it. And by golly, he's going to do it. He's going to be with Jesus. He's not going to turn from Jesus. He's ready. But we see a servant girl, the high priest, asked Peter if he was with Jesus, the Nazarene. He denies it. But he didn't leave. He only went to the gate yard. By contrast, these two scenes, we see Peter is denying Jesus before a servant girl. A servant girl. What is a servant girl going to do to Peter? Jesus said, put away your sword. You don't need it. Where is it now? I think he still has it. A servant girl? What is she going to do to him? Go tell on him? Nah, 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 nah. Peter's over there. They can't do anything to him. But look at Jesus. Where is he? Upstairs. Standing before all of the Sanhedrin. All he has to do is open his mouth. Say, hey, you, you guys are not following the law. He could say anything. He could turn this thing around. He didn't open his mouth. He didn't. Jesus told the truth and remained faithful as a, with a, at a great cost. He was standing before men who had the power to condemn him to death. But yet he still remained faithful. It was very little consequence to tell the truth to a servant girl, but he still denied Jesus. Let us not miss the fact that Peter is denying Jesus with his actions as well as his words. Where is Peter? Where is Peter? He's standing with the same guards that seized Jesus in the garden. Wait, what? Many Christians have heard messages about denying Jesus with our words. But are you denying him with your actions? Where are you? Where are you? Oh, I don't mean I don't mean right now. I see you sitting there. I'm not crazy. But where do you hang out? Where is your entertainment? Are you on social media standing in the courtyard with the guards who sees Jesus? Are you denying Jesus by remaining quiet when you should speak up? Are you just like the daunted disciple denying Jesus in a place with no or little consequences? There's still hope 
but those who occasionally deny Jesus. Jesus' second bold claim was, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter denied Jesus three times and then remembered Jesus' words. Peter broke down and wept. J.B. Phillips' version of the Bible renders this verse, as the truth broke upon him, he burst into tears. What was the truth that broke upon him? Peter probably remembered the time he proudly declared in front of everyone, though all those cowards deny you, I will never deny you. He didn't use that word, but he realized the truth that he was the biggest coward of all. The self-confidence that he was standing on came crumbling down like a house built from straw. The very people he looked down on, he became. I'm so glad most of you didn't know me when I came to know the Lord. I was really spiritual, I thought. I do remember early in my Christian walk that there were certain Christians I railed against. I had very little regard for them and often said to myself and out loud, how could they do that? Don't they read their Bibles? Can't they see that they're doing more damage with their double life? I'll never be that kind of Christian. Well, I didn't say it like that. I just, let, brother, let me pray for you. But it's not until the truth broke upon me that I wept. There's such a sense of shame at that moment. It can be felt deep in places that you never thought existed. Where it reads, Peter broke down and wept in the English version, the Greek can also be rendered hiding his face in his cloak for shame. There it is. There's that motif again of shame. The young man's shame who ran away naked. Peter's shame. Your shame. My shame. What do we do with it? What do we do without guilt and shame? The blood of Christ will be of sin, the double cure. It will save us from its guilt and power. The violent death of Christ will wash away our sins. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. We looked at the flaming religious rulers. We looked at the flickering, daunted disciple. And if we stop here, we would be men most miserable. We see our depravity, our lack of faith, and our cowardliness. But in verse 62, we see the mighty Messiah reigning. Jesus remained quiet until the high priest asked him a question. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? They are so holy, they won't even say God's name. This is short form of God, they say blessed. Boy, they crossing every T and dotting every I and breaking every rule to kill Jesus. Jesus answers in the affirmative and quotes Daniel 7, 13 and Psalm 110. We read it this morning. This is the first time Jesus publicly declares his Masonic son of man status. We see Jesus's courage in his answer. He knew that when he made this statement, it sealed his death sentence. Yet he said it anyway. 
Had he denied any of their charges, they might have been powerless to touch him at the time. We see Jesus' confidence in his answer. Even though the cross is inevitable, he still spoke of his victorious future. We are going to fail in this life. We will have times when we deny Jesus, walk away in shame, or run away, hopefully not naked. But nevertheless, run away. Come behold the wondrous mystery. How is it that a lowly man riding on a donkey can also be the reigning king who comes on the clouds in glory? Our hope is not in a program, but in a person. Our joy is not just in somebody, but in a savior. Our destiny depends on a deliverer. Jesus is the Messiah that the Jews were looking forward to his first coming. Jesus is the Messiah that we Gentiles are looking forward to his second coming. We need Christ Jesus because we have a sin problem, and he's the only one who can deliver us from sin. Please don't rely on human goodness. Most of you are better than me. Your character, your ability to tell the truth, your steady personality. You don't get riled up. You don't get angry. But your human goodness is not enough. One man compared human goodness and may be likened to a canoe. A canoe is a lovely little boat for its purpose, to be used on rivers and lakes in calm water. It is admirably suited for young people on a beautiful day or evening in June. But the canoe is not suitable at a seaport or to cross the ocean. It is, totally unfit. It is a totally unfit boat for such a purpose. The trip from New York to France to be cannot be made by a canoe, even in the month of June when the ocean is generally calm. So the human character is admirably suited to take an individual around the daily courses of life in the midst of a sinful world, but it is totally depraved. It is a totally depraved thing for the passage from earth to heaven. If a canoe can be judged by all the canoeists, is such word, to be best the, the best canoe that was ever made, it is still insufficient for ocean passage. If a human character can be judged by all men to be the best human character they've ever developed and ever seen, it is still insufficient for the passage from death to life, from earth to heaven. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Only a God-man who came to earth as a baby and lived a sinless life can be payment for your sins and mine. Only the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven can save you and me from eternal destruction. That's our only hope. Let's lean upon Christ. Let's pray. O Son of God and Son of Man, you are incarnate, did suffer, rise, ascend for our sake. Your departure was not a token of separation, but a pledge of return. Your word, 
promises, sacraments, show your death until you come again. That day is no horror to us, for your death has redeemed us. Your spirit fills us. Your love animates us. The word governs us. We have trusted you and you have not betrayed our trust because you are the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Oh God, keep us in this faith and ever looking for Christ's return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.